Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm John Wells. Our next guest is Mike Rucker, who has written The Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. Grounded in current research, accessible science, and practical recommendations, The Fun Habit explains how you can build having fun into an actionable and effortless habit and why doing so will help you become a healthier, more joyful, and more productive person. Mike Rucker, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you so much for having me, John. We're delighted to have you on the program this morning. And uh, maybe we can start with this. Uh, Why did you write this book? So I've been a zealot of positive psychology for quite some time. I'm a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. And for those that don't know what positive psychology is, it's essentially an offshoot of psychology that happened about, you know, Cheek Set Me High was writing about flow before this, but a consortium of, of different Um, clinical psychologists had gotten together and wanted to look at psychology as a way for betterment rather than just treating mental deficit, which had, you know, um, its history has really been meant as a way to, to treat people. And so positive psychology was how can we use these tools to help people flourish and people be happier. And so I had aggressively used those tools. Um, Now in the rear view mirror, I can say I over-optimized using those tools to really try to make myself happy all the time. And so long story short, in 2016, I had a series of unfortunate events. My younger brother passed away from a pulmonary embolism quite suddenly. Um, I had been a lifelong endurance enthusiast and found out quite suddenly these two aren't related, but a, a couple months after my brother passed, found out that I had advanced osteoarthritis. I'd probably injured myself um, in a marathon or one of the Ironman that I had done and it had gone unnoticed and essentially didn't have any cartilage left in my, uh, right hip and needed hip replacement and was told I, I wouldn't be a runner anymore. Cause when you get a hip replacement at a young age, you're essentially putting car parts in your body. Right. So right. they do have a lifespan and you, you don't, you, they try to avoid revisions because cutting through that scar tissue, um, you know, can be problematic later in life. So long story short, you know, I had identified as a runner, used running to mitigate anxiety, and that tool was taken away from me. Yet, because I had always been, you know, a big optimist and, and loved positivity, I was trying to will myself out of this malaise that I was in um, because that's what I had always done, even though the appropriate re- response at the time was to mourn my brother's death and to understand and sort of accept this identity change, you know, that I wasn't going to be able to enjoy endurance sport the way that I used to. And so the more I tried to chase happiness, the more I was becoming unhappy. And I was self-aware enough to sort of understand this, but it was also a new phenomenon, right? Because these tools have been super helpful. And I guess serendipitously around the same time, there was a lot of emerging research to suggest, especially here in the West, you know, now we call it toxic positivity, right? But back then it was fairly fresh. This idea that not necessarily valuing happiness as an ideal or wanting people to flourish, but being overly concerned of your own happiness and always trying, you know, this quote unquote, good vibes only, that it was actually quite detrimental. It leads to fairly poor mental health hygiene and in a lot of instances can actually lead to mental illness. And I was certainly on that path. So, okay, I, I was enlightened, but if this wasn't the way forward, right, these tools, that had been so helpful were failing me, what could I do? And my prior research was in, in workplace wellness, and I saw this big tie to autonomy and well-being. 
right? We know that workers that have a lack of autonomy, like factory workers that essentially have, you know, big quotas and aren't told how they can do their job, you know, really low autonomy has a straight line to poor psychological outcomes and poor physiological outcomes. So this idea of agency and autonomy was something I knew well, and I started digging into the literature and, and I was, there's not a lot about funds. So like any good researcher, we call this yeah. a research gap, right? I started going for the folks that were looking at this. And so it was outside of clinical psychology, it really was in social psychology. And so anyone mm -hmm. that gets the book will understand that, that that's really where, what it's rooted in, even though it certainly has clinical applications. And it was this idea like, okay, so my emotional state is one thing. And there's certainly times that you sort of need to unpack that. Um, you know, Barbara Fredrickson calls this broad and build theory, right? Like you want uh, to uh, figure this out, but um, at the end of the day, you are able to index and um, approach fun things in your life. And it's not necessarily tied to your emotional state. And once you index these things, once you start realizing that you have control over your ability to invite joy and delight, the emotional state becomes a slagging indicator. Right. So you start enjoying yourself and then happiness comes rather than the opposite. Well, um, there are a lot of moving pieces to this. Let's start with happiness. I mean, after all, it is our constitutional right and a mm -hmm. hey, pursuit of happiness. This is, this is great. But uh, tell us the science behind why prioritizing fun rather than happiness might be a more productive use of our energy and ultimately will make us feel better. Yeah. So what it does is it begins to eliminate rumination, right? I meant happiness the way we've defined it here, especially in the West, you know, sometimes in literature, it's called subjective well-being is really an act in evaluation. And so, you know, once you get stuck of seeing happiness out there in the horizon and you sort of at point A and happiness at point B, what happens is you start to really ruminate on that gap. And eventually over time, in an insidious way, it can bleed into your identity. So all of a sudden, because you're never where you want to be, you start to identify as unhappy. And so where fun becomes an effective tool is that it's really an action-oriented approach, right? It starts to guide you in a way where you're reframing the way you live your life in a I get to do attitude rather than an I have to do attitude. And so once you do that, you can start to you know, build in interesting mechanisms to recapture some of your leisure time. And so we refer this as time affluence, but so many of us in the West have really habituated our lives and sort of given everything away, right? Where we're not doing anything for ourselves to light us up. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're engaging in selfish acts. A lot of times it's, okay, I'm already spending time with my partner and my children. How can I make these activities not from this place of duty per se, but, you know, and still do them, but engage in those activities in a way that are yeah. more fun. And, and uh, interestingly, when you talk about uh, trying to find time to do some of these things, you know, we all know that we're busy, we're all overworked, we've got this, you know, all, all of the different things that you said earlier, but you also say that it's relatively easy because there's roughly two to five hours that could be recaptured every day just by doing these mindless things like staring at your phone, looking for likes, uh, wondering what the text says. And, and 
you could ask somebody, well, what did you do during that period? Because all of that is, uh, all all that detail is 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 captured on our phones today. And they could say, gee, I, I don't really know what I was doing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So this research comes from Cassie Holmes out of UCLA. Um, she calls it the, you know, the Goldilocks um, hours. And, uh, you know, most people think that they don't have time, but when you really become mindful of your schedule, there generally is between two to five hours a day that you can sort of reclaim. So there are a couple of things to quickly unpack there. One, even if you don't believe that number, because every time you sort of present it, people are like, okay, yeah, that, that might be a generalization, but that doesn't apply to me. That's fine. Let's work on finding two to three hours you can recapture. So you feel you right. know, that increase of vitality and vigor just by you know reclaiming a little bit of time for yourself. The other is, is that, there's a whole host of empirical research to suggest that we undervalue the the restorative um, or excuse me, restorative um, uh, manner that in integrating fun back into our lives gives us. So, you know, I, I can't go out and reclaim a hobby like dance lessons on a Tuesday. I'm just too tired or too busy. But the folks that actually take a nudge, you know, like from my book and actually do it, they show up as a better version of themselves you know, the, the next day. And so these things end up adding to our vitality rather than depleting. Unfortunately, we usually default to thinking they will be depleting. Like, I'm just too tired to do that. Right. Well, quite the contrary. These things, one, allow us to be more productive the next day. They also allow us, you know, a whole host of physiological benefits. Like we end up, mm -hmm. you know, going to sleep later. We feel more fulfilled because we're actually engaging in things we like. Um, and, you know, just a whole host of additional benefits. Right. I'd like to talk about mental health uh, for a moment. We all know people that uh, have struggled with mental health issues. Maybe we've gone through it ourselves. We understand the suffering. And the post-COVID numbers are staggering. One year before COVID in January of 2019, 11% of adults reported symptoms of anxiety disorder and or uh, depressive disorder, according to the Kaiser Foundation. Family Foundation, and then two years later, in January 2021, the difference, the the numbers increased from 11 percent to 41 percent of adults reporting those same symptoms. So, what what I want to mention is, I mean, the people that are suffering, you know, they're 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 going through tough times, and hopefully, uh, they are getting some help and some and support. But the other 59% that have not reported anxiety or depressive disorder, they may not be having serious mental health issues, but how are they doing post-COVID? Are, are they banged up from, from isolation? Are they unsure of the future? Are they at odds with family members? Some are pro-vaccine, some are anti-vaccine. Uh, how has COVID affected the fun side of their world? Yeah, so it goes back to this idea of autonomy, right? I mean, you know, right or wrong, because I definitely believe in greater good arguments. And so I think for the greater good, we had to give up a lot of our autonomy. So whether, you know, it doesn't matter what side you're on, at the end of the day, we still had to do a lot of things that might have made us feel uncomfortable. And also the world around us was a scary place, right? I mean, ultimately there are three sort of key components of how we thrive. One is who we surround ourselves by, right? I mean, you know, the idea of loneliness has been well-documented, especially in the last uh, couple of years with regards to having a direct line to um, good mental hygiene. 
the environment that we're in. And so we've been stuck inside in our own environment. And ultimately that's going to grow old because we know that variability is an important component of, uh, of making us feel like our life is well lived. And then the things that we engage in, a lot of what we really enjoyed was taken away from us because, you know, rightfully businesses needed to close because we all became vectors of this really insidious disease, right? The world has now opened up. And so I certainly don't want to prescribe to anyone. Again, I don't want to, you know, uh, distribute positive, uh, toxic positivity myself. So everyone's going to figure out their comfort zone when, you know, when they can start to integrate activities back into their life. But certainly looking at those three key components, and if you're feeling still like, oh, you know, I, I need to just sort of get out of this rut, you know, what can you do to integrate back in? First, I would suggest who are the people that really do light you up when you engage time with them, you, you feel joyful, you're laughing, you know, you're enjoying the activities that you are, you just enjoy the conversation. If you're an introvert, you know, just those one-on-one -on -one connections, you know, reaching back out. A lot of us, you know, because our lives lived in Zoom, right? We, we kind of forgot those social graces, right? Just send out a couple of invitations. A lot of times, you know, just getting that started again will sort of prime the pump for you to, you know, start connecting with your friends again. And then <laughs> really just knowing that there's a lot back out there with regards to en enjoying the activities that you once engaged in. So uh, how, where the pandemic became problematic is we really have habituated our behavior. And that's really hard to be mindful of until you do something like a time audit, right? And yeah. so there's only 168 hours in your week. There's a lot of us that prescribe that, you know, again, Cassie, Laura Vanderkam. Um, but it's a helpful exercise that, you know, isn't quote unquote fun, but allows you to see to your point, you know, wow, okay, I really am. There's four hours a week that I'm just mindlessly, you know, viewing social media or, you know, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm just plopping down on the couch because I'm not enjoying life and I'm just so burnt out when yeah. I get home, that's all I can do. And so a good lens for figuring out whether or not, you know, I kind of call this yielding activities, whether or not you're spending time that's not adding to betterment or sort of filling you up is, can you remember what you did a week later? When you look back <laughs> at that, can you tell me one, you know, silly meme that you saw, or could you tell me, you know, what was that movie on Netflix that you watched? Yeah. You know, was it, did it really light you up and, and, and give you a takeaway or make you laugh or connect you with a partner? Cause you guys were snuggling on the couch or did you just kind of waste your time, you know, in and out of consciousness. And so there's a few things there. This comes from Matthew Killingsworth out of Harvard. We know those kind of wandering activities that, you know, don't really contribute to our betterment or index, you know, memories. One make us feel like life is just passing us by, yeah. but on a bigger level for folks that are kind of worried about, you know, their future state, this comes from Bronnie Ware. We know that, um, you know, we index all these habitual activities as sort of one memory. So when we look back, we're like, oh yeah, I just kind of made dinner for the family or, you know, I, right. I commuted to work or I, I did taxes or whatever it is. Those things don't dilate time for us. They really shorten time because the way our, you know, our brain stores memories. That, a quick antidote there, and then I'll, I'll stop. Is like you know, if you had a thousand uh, magazine copies of the of the same magazine, would you keep all a thousand, or would you throw out nine hundred ninety nine and keep that sure. one because that's all you need? And that's how the brain works, right? So mm -hmm. again, if we're not enjoying life, these things that we've habituated over time get stored as one memory, and that becomes 
quite problematic as we uh, grow older, not just for our well-being, but also for um, cognitive plasticity. We know, you know, again, even things that this isn't necessarily integrating fun, but even things as simple as, you know, driving a different way to work, you know, just making sure that your life is novel is important for neuroplasticity. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Dr. Mike Rucker. He has written The Fun Habit, How the Disciplined Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. I uh, I was laughing a bit back then because I read your book over the weekend and I had two pads of paper. One pad of paper, I was writing down all the questions that I had and the things that I wanted to learn about having fun and, and your research and the science. And the second pad of paper was all the things I'm going to start doing to kind of push this a little bit. And I, so I've got a whole list in that and I've already, you know, started, you know, scheduling things and, and being a little more mindful of going after it and, uh, I love it. and, and all of that. So thank you for that. Um, this is a science program and there was a term that I'd never heard before. It was a set point theory, the hedonic treadmill. Can you talk about what can, can you define that? And can you tell us how that plays into the mix of all of this? Yeah. So one of the interesting sort of constructs of happiness, you know, that makes it a little bit problematic is that we tend, well, one, it's sort of an act in comparison, right? And so, you know, someone, you know, in, in a lower socioeconomic class can be actually happier than us because they're comparing themselves to that strata, right? So that becomes, we know that part of our subjective well-being is sort of looking at how we compare ourselves to our peers, right? The other is that we adapt to things that we do find joyful, right? So, you know, this is commonly shown, although these have been hard to replicate, there's still some meat to pull from the bone. Uh, we've looked at lottery winners um, and, you know, obviously when they get that big windfall, there's all this sort of happiness and excitement. And then over time, they ultimately fall back to the level of happiness that they once were before winning that. And sometimes yeah. even worse, um, they're less happy because of all the stresses, you know, cousins that want money and, <laughs> and things of that nature or the money runs out. And then, you know, um, and so what the hedonic treadmill kind of, you know, is a metaphor for is the fact that we oftentimes, you know, good or bad. So there's, you know, there's a silver lining to this too. These studies have been done with folks that have like lost a limb, you know, and obviously they need to mourn the fact that, you know, the, the, the things they used to do, they can't do, but they often become just as happy as they were, if not more happy, because now they're just grateful to be alive. Right. And so, um, you know, highlighting it with both these lottery winners and, you know, folks that, uh, you know, amputees, uh, this idea that if we're not mindful, if we're just kind of living life, um, you know, without really integrating things that are specific to us and really enjoying them in the moment, that oftentimes, no matter what comes our way, we're going to move to this happiness set point that's kind of genetically predispositioned. And so uh, this work comes from Sonia Lubomirsky. The idea is that about 50% of how we view our happiness is genetically predetermined, you know, based on our neurochemical mm -hmm. makeup, you know, based on our genetics, 40% we have control over. And so that's really where, you know, the sweet spot of the fun habit, how do we take back that control? So we're really making the best out of that 40%. And then 10% has to do with, um, you know, our, our good fortune, right. Or, mm -hmm. or fortune in general. So, 
we have 40% within our control. And if that's true, then why leave it up to happenstance? And so that's the argument I make in the book is that we can really take back that control. And if we're living our lives deliberately in a way that, that we're using the time, you know, with our own power, with our own agency, that kind of circumvents that treadmill because now we're not worried about going up and down. We're just realizing and being grateful that, wow, I'm really getting to enjoy the time that I do have here on earth. Mm-hmm. Now, we all have routines that can be frustrating, and you talk about one uh, in your own life, and that is getting your kids out the door in the morning to go to school. What did you do to make that a little more fun? Yeah, so, you know, that is just simple reframing. I think if you understand that, uh, you know, activity that has to get done, and that's a perfect example, right? I mean, we have to take our our kids to work, uh, excuse me, to school um, and get ourselves to work for that matter. That or just put them to work so we can uh, we can retire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that those routines, if, if they're kind of dragging us down, I call this activity bundling. Mm-hmm. What can you add to those elements so that you know the activity becomes a little bit more whimsical? So you know, we were just grinding down our kids. We were getting frustrated. You know, um, the whole activity became outcome uh, focused, and you know, it was really something that just wasn't joyful. And so. What we did was just some subtle shifts. We made the environment a little bit more fun. We put on music. You know, we made sure that everyone was clear on the goal we were trying to achieve. But we kind of uh, were mindful of if we make the environment a little bit more enjoyable, will the outcome get better? Will it get worse? Or, um, you know, what will happen? And so in that instance, that sort of experiment of one, we didn't really change the outcome. You know, we we still kind of got out the door at the same time that we always did. but everyone enjoyed themselves more. Everyone (laughs) left uh, a lot happier. And so here's an instance where, okay, I banged my head against the wall for several years. Everyone just hates this experience. How can I change it up a little bit? And so ultimately the uh, reality of the experience didn't change, but the subjective interpretation of the experience changed for everyone for the better. What is the most misunderstood thing about having fun? I think that the idea that it's whimsical, right? And then um, this science comes from an amazing uh, study out of MIT, Stanford, and Harvard um, called the hedonic flexibility principle. And I think um, the key takeaway is that the folks that aren't having fun generally lead to, you know, quote unquote, pleasurable experiences of escapism, you know, drinking, you know, gambling, things that really just take their mind off the fact that life isn't fun. But those that actively engage in activities like what we've just described over the last 30 minutes, that gives them the resilience to do the harder stuff. So the folks that really are taking time off the table for themselves are the ones that are the most productive. So there's a big paradox there, right? Especially because, you know, kind of this hustle porn culture over the last 20 years, right? That, you know, you need to grind it out to have some sort of self-worth and value um, has really proved to be deprecated. detrimental. And so the folks that are really crushing it are the ones that have this transition ritual between work and then their leisure time, because, you know, then they're really, you know, refilling the batteries as it were, um, and then engaging the next day as a better version of themselves. And so where I see this going, you know, I feel like I'm kind of on the cusp of where we were with sleep, you know, 10, 20 years ago, right? I mean, we used to leave, um, we used to kind of use sleep deprivation as a badge of honor. Like, you know, I'm just crushing it. I'm only getting 20 hours of sleep. 
you know, and, you know, I'm so productive. And we now know that's an asinine assertion, right? And so I think you're going to see the same with leisure. I mean, again, you, uh, you know, I know this is going to air in a couple of weeks, but uh, just last week, so the beginning of 2023, um, LinkedIn was reporting that 50% of U.S. workers are not taking any vacation time at all. That essentially puts the second to last within countries across the globe, right? And, you know, kind of backing up some of the mental hygiene stats that you reported earlier, 27% of U.S. adults are so stressed, they say they can't even function, right? So this, you know, this is kind of become an epidemic at this point that people are so burnt out, they, they can't even be productive. And so there's a big course correction that needs to happen. Yeah. And I think fun is going to be a vital tool in doing that. And picking up on what you said a, a moment ago or a couple minutes ago about transitioning from work to leisure, in the 1950s, that wasn't a problem, or the 60s or early 70s. But today, uh, if we're working at home, if we're if we're Zoom calling, if we've got all these different things that are sort of all mixed up together in our leisure life and our social life and our work life, there's there's no demarcation. There's no there's no way of being able to uh, actually carve something off because it's one big contiguous mess. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, and that's just one of many headwinds, right? You know, the idea yeah. that um, you know, for folks that have a propensity to doom scroll, and I'm certainly in that camp, so I'm throwing a yeah. rock at a glass house. You know, our ability there's abundance of bad and abundance of good, and there always has been, right? But um, to your point, um, there's always another email that, that we can um, send. So you're walking into the house, oftentimes, you know, still on a conference call. Um, you think you're engaging in leisure, but ultimately you're still in the office because you're looking at your phone every five minutes. You know, if you get some sort of Slack alert or email alert, many people are, you know, on email until their, their head hits the pillow. So you're spot on there. Then yeah. also just our access to interruption, right? They call it the attention economy for a reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, we used to have a lot more agency and autonomy over how we spent our time. And now there are all sorts of mechanisms to hijack that. And if we're not mindful of it, um, what happens is we don't know where those 160 hours went. Uh, and so we kind of need, you know, just these nudges to remind us that we do still have a lot of control over how we spend our time. And maybe that's just shutting off notifications. You know, again, the U.S. is so bad at this, but you're seeing a lot of uh, companies in, in several countries across the EU actually shut down their email servers at 5 p.m. on a Friday so that folks can't send work emails on the weekend. I mean, these are small steps, but they're yeah. huge, right? To know that yeah. you actually get a true break um, on your weekend it is a big deal. Um, and again, a host of empirical research suggests this that those breaks are so important. You know, it allows us to get out of linear thinking so that we can think more creatively. It allows us to recharge our batteries. It reduces stress. It increases resilience. I mean, the list goes on with right. regards to benefits. Dr. Mike Rucker has written The Fun Habit, How the Disciplined Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. Mike, we want to thank you so much for joining us this morning on Cool Science Radio. Thank you so much for having me, John. This has been a pleasure. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware-Peak. Our next guest is Mark Abrahams, founder of the Ig Nobel Prize. No, not that Nobel, the Ig Nobel. This one-of-a-kind ceremony celebrates the unusual and imaginative discoveries and inventions. 
Mark, a Harvard-educated mathematician and co-founder and editor of the Annals of Improbable Research, came up with the idea of the Ig Nobels in 1990 as a way to honor and showcase the science that is typically overlooked, but still important. Mark, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me on. I've been watching the Nobels since 2007, but I do know oh, that... How I'm... long have you been watching the Ig Nobels? Sorry, I had to do that. <laughs> 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 listening to the Ig Nobel since 2007. Even though I'm a fan, I know that unfortunately many people that I've talked to do not know of the Ig Nobels. Could you oh, give us no. a quick summary of the Ig Nobels? Yeah, they're prizes, first of all. We've been doing this, as you pointed out, since 1991. So it's 10 prizes every year, but they're really unusual prizes. Almost, almost every prize that I know of <clears> is <throat> either for the very best something, like Oscars are for the best movies, Nobel Prizes are for the best science or the best literature, best whatever. Or there are a few prizes for the worst stuff, you know, worst dressed list, worst movies. But with us, with the Ig Nobel Prizes, best and worst, they don't matter. They're irrelevant. That's not what this is about. This is about things that make people laugh and then think. And that's it. And that's unusual. So things that real things where the moment, the first moment you hear about it, if we chose well, the first moment you hear about it, your immediate reaction is to laugh for whatever reason. But there's something about it that's going to stick in your head so that a week later, you're still, you still want to talk about it. You want to tell your friends and argue about it. So that's, that's what this is about. Um, ten prizes, most of them have to do with science, but not all of them. We usually give out a literature prize. Uh, we've given out prizes for all kinds of stuff. And, and it, this is really about things that are so very surprising to most people, so outside most people's day-to-day -day experience that they're funny at first. You know, everybody's life is filled with stuff like that, except it doesn't seem like that to you. It's only when you run into somebody you haven't seen for years, like at a family Christmas party or something, and some relative asks you, um, tell me, dear, um, and I really want to know, what do you do at work every day? Say on a Wednesday at um, 11 o'clock in the morning, tell me moment to moment what you do. And if you describe that, you realize the words coming out of your mouth sound insane, that the stuff you do every day is filled with little stuff that seems crazy. And it seemed crazy to you the first day you took that kind of job or went to that school or whatever. But you get used to it so fast that that's normal. So the Ig Nobel Prizes, and I realize I'm giving a long description here. It's easier if you um, hear some examples. But these are about things that have that quality where it just seems nuts <laughs> in, in a funny way at first. And then when you start to think about it, it's connected to all kinds of things. Well, I loved the 2006 award in ornithology that studied why woodpeckers don't get headaches. Yeah. Have you ever heard a single complaint from one, even one woodpecker about their headache? That was done by a couple of doctors, one in California uh, at University of California, Davis, I think, one in England. And these are doctors who study eyes and brains, and they were trying to figure out a little bit, not so much the woodpeckers, but what's the difference? What what allows a woodpecker to do this violent thing to its head, to its brain, that 
if any person did that, you'd die. <laughs> and, and your brain would, you know, first horrible things would happen. You know, we're seeing that with football and all sorts of sports now and always have if people look. And so they were wondering about that and they were wondering for football and other sports, is there anything that they can do, that people in the sport can do a little differently so they're not in danger? And that's what this was about. And it turned out to be a, a sort of complicated and interesting answer. And as with many things, the story didn't end there. Just a year or two ago, some other doctors came out with a completely different explanation of how it is that a woodpecker's brain can thrive, you know, through its lifetime when it, this bird is hitting its head 10,000 times a day against a piece of wood. <laughs> Boy, I'm, I bet the NFL would love to learn more about that, right? When these doctors started, the NFL did not want to learn more about that. The NFL did not want to talk about it, really. Because this, they, they did this stuff 30 years ago or so, and nobody would, would talk to them about it at that point. And that's what they were really interested. They wanted to get people thinking about this so kids would not get injured as much and, and things would be safer. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with Mark Abrahams about the Ig Nobel Prizes. Yeah, not Nobel Prize, but the Ig Nobel Prize. What does the IG part stand for, Mark? <laughs> oh, it was just somebody's bad joke going back decades and decades about, you know, there's the word Ig Nobel, not noble. So Ig Nobel Prizes. And we turned that joke into you know, Ig Nobel. So Ig doesn't mean anything. It's just a nonsense word. And one thing I have to deal with every year is the Ig Nobels pretty early on became pretty famous in a lot of parts of the world. So every year in, the, in September when the prizes happen, we get a lot of email and phone calls and whatever from reporters from around the world. So I get a wave of phone calls in many different accents every year around September say, what is the word Ig? What, what is meaning of Ig, that word? And yeah, so we get to talk. One of the unique things about the Ig Nobel Prizes is that the prizes are actually handed out or presented by Nobel laureates from mm -hmm. the real Nobel. I shouldn't say real versus <laughs> not real because it's all very real, but those who are probably quite amused at this whole thing, who have received Nobel Prizes in the past, they're presenting the Ig Nobels. And you have them in, as you said before, all kinds of categories. But tell us some of the categories and are they the same each year? Yeah. Well, first about the Nobel Prize winners. When we started this the first year, we were trying to think of everything we could put in. because We decided, well, let's have a ceremony every year. So we have a ceremony. And the first few years it was... We're out here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was at MIT, the big engineering school. And then the fifth year, we moved it a couple of miles down the road to Harvard, the, the big everything school. And we thought, you know, if we could get some, some really famous scientists to come to the ceremony and shake hands with the Ig Nobel Prize winners and hand them some goofy little prize or something, that would be kind of funny. So I had... I'd become the editor of a science magazine before this. That's you know, what got me thinking about all this stuff. And in doing that, I had met 
suddenly an awful lot of scientists and some of them had these nice prizes and some of them had clearly a sense of humor about themselves. You know, they were comfortable in public not being a god <laughs> every moment. So I invited four of them to come to this first Ig Nobel ceremony and they all said, sure. So, you know, we had these four famous scientists and a lot of other people. And that's how that started. And every year we get a bunch of Nobel prize winners who come partly because it's fun <laughs> and partly I, from what many of them have said, because they get to be kind of off duty in public. They get to be people in public rather than, I don't know, <laughs> whatever gods or something. And partly, mostly because they get to meet these people who've won the Ig Nobel prizes. But during the ceremony, when we introduce the winners, the winners are kept secret until that moment on stage. When we introduce them, there's this 10 times, because there are 10 prizes, there's this magical moment when the Ig Nobel Prize winner steps out and the Nobel Prize winner steps up and they look at each other and neither one can quite believe this is happening. <laughs> so it's, it's really fun for both of them uh, and they get to talk. So yeah, the categories where this is about things that are surprising, the categories really don't matter too much. So we don't have fixed categories every year. We do usually give a physics prize and a biology prize and a medicine prize and a few other things, but we don't really care about the category because some of the things we give prizes to, you probably have a list of winners. We should give some examples for people who haven't heard about this thing. Some of these things, it's really hard to figure out what category could you stick this thing in. I'll, I'll give you an example. We gave a prize 20 or more years ago to a guy named Troy Hertebees, who's from North Bay, Canada. Troy, <clears throat> excuse me, at that point had spent something like seven years, seven years, building and personally testing a suit of armor that he could wear that would protect him against grizzly bears. Troy wanted to be able to go out in the woods and hang out with grizzly bears. He had, he had had some kind of encounter with a grizzly bear in the Rockies in Canada, and he wanted to be able to do that but not get killed. So he started building this suit of armor. And grizzly bears, you know, they're kind of big and powerful, <laughs> a lot more than most people realize. So he went to the town dump, and he, he found some old hockey protection equipment, because it's Canada, and... He used that as the beginning of his suit of armor, and he'd add metal and other stuff to make it stronger. And then he'd start testing it. He'd start having people throw rocks at him or hit him with baseball bats or whatever. And when he found that the suit wasn't strong enough yet, he would add more protection to the suit. So the suit got thicker and thicker and harder and harder to walk around in. And he had people videotape all of this stuff. It got to the point where they were pushing him off the side of cliffs, running into him with jeeps, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. And the Canadian government has a film production unit, National Film Board of Canada, and they made a documentary of Troy. You can see this. It's called Project Grizzly. You can go and Google this. It's online. And you can watch Troy over the years as he tests these various versions. It's startling. <laughs> it's also really funny. So we gave Troy a prize. But if you, a question for both of you, if you were going to pick a category for this, we're going to give you Troy Herbie's the Ig Nobel Prize in the category of something or other. What category do you choose for this? I think maybe you start a new category of most practical. 
because yeah. that's something that okay. could actually be used <laughs> in the, the backwoods of Canada. Lynn, what would you? Well, you know, I thought about engineering, yeah. you know, mechanical engineering, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, we it took us a long time and a lot of arguing, and we finally came up with something that was a blend of the two ideas that you have just come up with. You, 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 each of you has done a better, quicker job than we did at this way back when. So maybe we finally, there's a future for us in the ignobels. <laughs> you're laughing about that. We'll see. <laughs> uh, we finally ended up giving him a prize in the category, the new category then of safety engineering. And we have, in the 20 or whatever years since, we've had one or two other things also in that category, including in the most recent collection of prize winners in uh, September 2022. One of the prizes went to a man in Sweden for some work he did about 20 years ago, where he um, he was in school, in graduate school, in a place that works on technology for cars and other things. And in Sweden, building cars that are safer than other cars has always been a big deal. Sweden has a problem for people who drive cars that there are these big animals called moose that are wandering around all over the place. And there are lots of collisions and lots of signs all over the country. In fact, so many signs, tourists used to steal them. And so he built the first moose crash test dummy, which then went into use with a lot of car manufacturers around the world and still is. So we gave him a prize a few months ago in the field of safety engineering. That's great. Very practical. It's interesting seeing how there's so much cross-collaboration between the disciplines. You know, you talk about some of the awards. One of my favorites is from 2013 with the Joint Prize in Biology and Astronomy for discovering that when dung beetles get lost, they can navigate their way home by looking at the Milky Way. Yeah. So that's funny. It's making me think. But then also, if you, were, if you were a dung beetle, that's just ordinary, though. Yeah. <laughs> Have they been able to take this research or some of the other things that may seem obscure and turn them into usable, applicable items or research? Sometimes, yeah. Um, scientists and and engineers and and people in general are. You know, every day everybody's working on little problems that you have in in your personal life or at work or whatever, and always have these little things to solve. Every once in a while you do something clever and you don't really know that it's going to turn out to be useful to you for a long time. But maybe it is. And if it is, maybe other people hear about it. And over the years, a whole bunch of people start doing it because you happen to have this little idea one day. And for years and years, it didn't seem like a big deal or very important. And of course, you probably have a thousand of those a week and you don't even remember it. So most of those just don't have that kind of life to them. But you never know. So that's that's how it goes with research on all kinds of stuff. Things just appear either goofy or or unimportant or both at the start. You don't know. 20 years from now, 100 years from now could turn out to be really useful. So to ask when you first have the idea or when somebody first tells you about their little clever idea, gee, but is this useful? You don't know. <laughs> and it's... You're not really asking just, is it useful right now, this moment, is it going to make a million dollars in the next week? You're really asking over your lifetime and and beyond, is somebody going to realize that what you did might make life better? You and the Ig Nobels recently won the Heinz Overhummer Award for Outstanding Science Communication. Can you tell us a bit about that award? Because whatever I tried to find was in German. And I'd love to know more (laughs) about that. And 
It's a big, it's an important thing what you are doing is explaining to the world that science is interesting and fun and accessible. Yeah, this is a prize uh, that's given out every year in Europe. It's in German because the people who give the prize are in Austria, where German is the main language. And they give this out once a year for what's um, called outstanding science communication. So we were really happy and thrilled. Gee, somebody gave us a prize for something. And it's nice that, that people were paying attention. It's prizes put together by Science Television Show and the City of Vienna and some universities and companies that fund this thing. A couple of months ago, I went over there and several Ig Nobel Prize winners from various countries came and we had a big event in the theater and it was really fun. Well, yeah. congratulations. Well, let's talk about some of the these other stories in recent Ig Nobel Awards. There is this funny one, but but also useful. And I think it's something that we all think about from time to time. This prize went to the Italians for economics. Um, mathematically explaining why success most, most often goes not to the most talented, but to the luckiest. We've yeah. all wondered that, why, right? Yeah, yeah. These were, uh, were and are, these are some physics professors and I think a sociology professor, whatever. And they, um, they're good at making computer models uh, of all kinds of things, including the way people behave doing something or other. So they, they, they got really interested in this question and, and in a whole bunch of others, too. They're also really interesting to almost anybody. And they made some simple models of how life plays out if you get lucky or if you don't happen to get lucky or if bad things happen or good things happen. And they made a whole bunch of variations on this so they could, you know, kind of see how things would go in lots and lots of different ways and run it, you know, a zillion times so it's not just once. And what they kept seeing over and over and over again, no matter how they set this thing up, was in the long run, the successful people, most of them were not the ones who were the most talented. They were the ones who were the most lucky. And when they say most lucky, what they really meant in that is not that, um, gee, somebody runs up and you know declares you're suddenly the queen of the country and can run everything that not that kind of luck so much it was the more the more important more common everyday kind of luck that you're lucky because nothing horrible happened you didn't get killed you know whenever whenever you started doing something um no, nobody ran in and, and and killed your business somehow you know you managed to avoid you know, through luck and and not just luck, but you have to have that luck is what they ended up saying that if you don't have that kind of luck, you're doomed. There's just there's just no way that you're going to hmm. be successful. And so it, they say if you if you just look at turn around and, and just look at success in a, in a different way than all of us look at it. And when you look at some very, you know, wealthy, powerful, successful person, the one thing that you know for sure is nothing really bad happened to that person. They were lucky that way. You know, they didn't get hit by a bus. They, they, they didn't get fired, you know, and thrown in jail. Um, all, all the bad things that might happen to them didn't happen to them. So they got, they were lucky that way and, and had some talent, maybe a lot, maybe a little. But they had the luck, and that's the one thing you, these, these Italian scientists are pointing out, that if you don't have that luck, you're doomed. If you do, mm. it doesn't mean you're going to be successful, and you can work 
you know, talent is certainly going to help you, especially if you have the talent of recognizing when you're being lucky and taking advantage. But if you don't have that luck, if something bad happens to you, something really bad, eh. So this is, isn't this interesting that it's not just a story anymore. It's they've ran, they, they ran all sorts of tests and yeah. demonstrations. Wow. Well, yeah. Develop yeah. that talent for recognizing luck. Yeah. And when to take. I, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Okay. But the so first have... moment you hear about it, it sounds funny. Exactly. Exactly. Well, here's a funny one. I'm sure people have, most people have observed ducks swimming in formation mm-hmm. and that they stay in formation even though, you know, even if the water's really turbulent. So there's a physics prize uh, shared by people from China, the UK, Turkey, and the US on this mm-hmm. one. Tell us yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, the Anybody who's who lives in a part of the country where there are ducks, which is most parts of the country, or most parts of the world, in fact, has seen this. You see a mother duck, and then you see a whole bunch of tiny ducks in a straight line swimming behind her. And they all, as you say, that this is what ducks do. Well, a whole bunch of physics people started to wonder how do they manage to do this? You know, is there some physics here that that makes it easy for them to do that? It makes it hard for them not to, so that you know it's always going to happen. And they found, yeah, uh, but they found because this stuff is complicated. If you try to describe it exactly what's going on start writing down some equations that describe it and see how those play out it's really complicated it's it's simple to describe but then when you start to see how it plays out it's really complicated so these two groups came up with very different ways probably both correct of describing in physics you know language what's going on here one of them discovered that it's a matter of waves. It's like surfing. It's like uh, if, if, if you follow a, a, a boat, you know, that's going kind of fast, there are waves. And you if you have a little surfboard or whatever, you can kind of sit in the wave behind the boat and surf along on it. That that's, that's going on. That's always going on with this big mother. She's like a mother ship with little baby ships behind. And in fact, some of the people who got this prize that's their profession. They're at a um, university in, in Scotland, in a part of Scotland that over the last couple of centuries has designed and made a lot of the big ships in the world. <laughs> That's what these people study and do professionally. And they were doing it mostly because they wanted to see, is there some way we can, we can have boats work more efficiently? And they're thinking, yeah, you know, maybe big tankers, if they behave the way these big mother ducks and little ducks behave. If you string them out that way, that might be a lot cheaper and better. Anyway, that's one way of looking at this. A, se- a separate group, actually one person 20 years earlier in Pennsylvania, a physics professor there had looked at the same question and found a different way of looking at it, which also is probably right. And what he said is, if you look at what happens, you can, you can do this yourself in a bathtub, even with toys, and you can see that this works. If you drag a toy duck or anything else through the water, behind it, there are little swirls, little eddies, little, little vortexes. And he worked out the physics and the math of that to show that those vortexes alone can explain why little ducks have an easy time and almost have to follow their mother in a line. 
So these are two really different ways of looking at it. So they both kind of disagree while at the same time agreeing that each other is correct on this. So we gave these two groups jointly, you know, together, an Ig Nobel Prize. And by the way, the, the physics professor in Philadelphia is named Frank Fish. So Frank Fish got an Ig Nobel Prize for studying how ducks swim. So when is the next Ig Nobel Prize ceremony? September. September. And, in September. And how can people find out more about the Ig Nobel and the work that you're doing and a list of past winners? Ah, it's all on our website, which is at improbable.com. There's a list of past winners and links to a lot of their stuff. And you can see videos of a lot of them. And also video of almost all of the Ig Nobel Prize ceremonies. There have been 32 of them. And you get to see these people. That's the magic thing. You get to see these people and see them talk a little bit about stuff. Uh, and, and also, we, we, um, we didn't realize it at the time, but 1995 was when we started webcasting the ceremony live. And years later, we learned out that that was one of the first things ever webcast. So we, you know, we were you know, very early in that and a bunch of other stuff, which, which is, you know, kind of funny to us. So anyway, September. And if, if anybody listening today knows of somebody who should get an Ig Nobel Prize, you know, they've done something that makes you laugh and then think, and you're pretty sure it's going to have that effect on anybody, let us know. We are hearing from people all the time, and this has been going on for more than 30 years now. And this is how we learn about most things. Most of the people who've won or teams that have won an Ig Nobel Prize, most of those we learned about because one person somewhere knew about it and told us. So you, you might think, oh, it's just me, you know, and everybody knows this stuff. Well, no, yeah, it's just you, but not everybody knows what you know. You run across stuff and share it with us, and, you know, maybe we'll share it with the world. Mark Abrahams is our guest. He is the founder of the Ig Nobel Prize and Ceremony. Mark, thank you for joining us today on Cool Science Radio. Thank you both. Oh, we should mention the magazine also. Oh, yes, we please. We have a magazine, which we've been doing all this time, called The Annals of Improbable Research. It comes out six times a year. Um, it's a PDF, so it's, you know, it's digital and all. Um, and it's about this kind of stuff, with, you know, tons of this stuff every two months that we've learned about. So, again, thank you very much, both of you. Thank Thanks, you, Mark. Mark.